Good morning to all of you. It's great to be together on this Lord's Day and to look into His Holy Word, which alone can be trusted as infallible without error. And so I'd ask you to turn to the book of 1 John as we continue our exposition in this wonderful letter that John wrote probably in the 80, mid-90s or so, one of the last books uh, written chronologically, chronologically at least. I read this week of a group of first graders that went on a field trip, and uh, they went to a hospital, and one of the children finally raised their hand and asked and said, why are people always washing their hands around here? Uh, You know, first graders are first graders, right? And so the nurse answered and said, well, there's two reasons. They love health, and they hate germs. They love health, but they hate germs, and that's why. And love and hate often go together. As you think about for Christians, there's a right kind of love that is good before the Lord, and then there is a wrong kind of love. Love and hate go together. Man is created to love. We love food. We love people. We love our children. We love our parents. We love arts. We love sports. We love all kinds of things, but we are to love God above all else. God alone, who is perfectly Uh, holy and just and righteous in all his ways. Anything that aligns with his purposes and his righteous standards, he loves. That which opposes those righteous standards, God hates. And today John tells us, do not love the world. That is the evil system of the world, the worldly thinking of this world. For example, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, wrote it like this, in which you, Christians, you formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Loving God and loving the world are antithetical. They just don't go together. And he'll tell us in verse 17, and this world is passing away or disintegrating, ceasing to exist. This world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So that contrast that we'll see, the idea of the world passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The Apostle Paul facing martyrdom in the end of uh, 2 Timothy is recounting how he's fought the good fight and all of those things, but then he begins to think about his companions over the years his co-workers, and he addresses several of them. But in verse 10 of chapter 4, he says this about Demas, who was a co-worker and is commended in two other letters, including Philemon. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone off to Thessalonica. Now, there's all kinds of speculations of why that he might have done that, but certainly Things are intensifying in Rome where Paul is. There's martyrdom. People are being killed for their faith under Nero. So maybe he was timid. He ran off. But the idea is that Thessalonica was a place of safety or much more safety than remaining there. But I think there's more to that. I think that's written there for a warning for us that there comes a time if you tiptoe loving God, loving the world and walking the fence that sometimes there's a point where you're just all in for the world, and you say, I just can't do both anymore. And you choose the wrong thing, and that's a dreadful thing. 
Sinclair Ferguson says this, when we learn to hold the world that is this present world with a loose grip, we are learning to take hold of the world to come with a tight grip. And so we have to have this balance in our lives. Loving the world that is passing away is like putting tinsel on a tree that is dead and decorating a tree that is completely dead with no life in it because it's passing away. It's going to cease to exist. So let's go ahead and read our text. We're going to look at verses um, 15 to 17. It's a clearly marked out section, but I'm going to pick us back to verse 12 to 17 just to get the fuller context. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In our text for today, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come now to a very strong warning in this letter, and it is a warning that very much applies to us in 21st century Southern California, and I pray, O God, that you would help us to have understanding that we would hear your voice and your voice alone coming through authoritatively from your infallible word. And Lord, that we would even be motivated for Christ's sake to grow in this area, to mortify affections and hidden lusts for this world, that we would fall in love with Christ, who alone is the rose of Sharon, who is the lily, who is the, um, the fairest of all, that we would love him all the more, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the broader context, of course, going back to verse 7, he's talking about how love is so vitally important. He gives, he puts the idea that if you claim to love God and hate your brother, that you're walking in darkness. And then last time in verses 12 to 14, we we got that picture of, of discipleship, really. It's a picture of, it's a diversion to address those who are within the church to give them encouragement. He's given hard tests. If you say this, and do that, then you're not in the. You're not walking with him. Um, if you're not keeping his commandments and you claim to know, know him, you're a liar. And finally, he gets down and he comes down to the end of verse eleven, and he gives that mutual encouragement. And we too need encouragement. John is speaking about spiritual maturity here. In other words, the the the, the little children are the newborn ones in Christ. Those who perhaps have been a believer for a year or so. And again, these are not timed, right? It, somebody can be a babe in Christ way far too long. Remember, Spurgeon said gray-haired babies are not very attractive. And so to remain a babe in Christ for long. And then the young men are those who are developing. They're becoming strong men. They're being mentored by the fathers, and they're growing in their, or their Christian maturity and in their boldness and even fighting the devil. And then the fathers are those who are to invest 
in the little children and the young men as well. And so, um, so that's that section. Now today, John moves from a description of church life and discipleship, as I just described, to how the church should view this present world. He moves from, remember, all four of those, or six of those verbs were perfect tense. He now shifts to a command, to the imperative in this section here. And he says very clearly, do not love the world. It's a present imperative, so it could be stated and translated like this. Stop loving the world. (laughs) Stop loving the world. It's It's an action that's in process. And the command not to love the world, he grounds on two arguments. The first is the incompatibility to claim to love God and to love this present evil world. And second, the temporal nature of this world contrasted with eternity with God, that this world is passing away. Oh, you can't see it disintegrating so much day by day, but it is passing away. And so brothers and sisters, we need this warning. In case you haven't noticed, we live in Sodom. We live in a wicked culture. There's all kinds of perversion going on all around us. And we can be enticed as the bait comes in different forms and shapes and smells and sizes and images and all of that. We can be seduced and led away by the bait. And we must heed the warning of John today. So we're going to look at this under three simple points, one Um, point for each verse, all in the form of questions. So be listening for those. Are you in love with this world system? Love is addressed throughout the Bible. John's writings, as you know, love is very, very prominent. The gospel of John, John, love occurs so many times. In this letter alone, love occurs 51 times, the word love. It's always used positively except for one place, the text that's before us. And so we should pay close attention. So what in the world does John mean by world? Cosmos has six definitions and BDAG, the best lexicon that's out there. And so there is all kinds of various um, interpretations and and ways that that could be used. uh, And and so I'm not going to unpack every one of those. But this, it is clear, it means the present evil world system. John is not saying, stop smelling the roses and enjoying the beauty of God's creation and the stars and and the ocean waves and the blue sky. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying stop enjoying God's creation. It's it's not even so much, um, you know, stop going to sports games and enjoying frozen yogurt uh, now and again. Uh, he, he, we, we use love in so many different contexts, don't we? I love the Padres. They won the home opener. <laughs> I love, I love, I hate the Chargers. <laughs> but, you know, whatever, if it's sporting games, if it's Frappuccinos, if it's your wife, it's, if it's your child who's just graduated from college, you know, I love NFL football. I love, I love iPhones, and I can't wait for iPhone 8, or whatever the, the thing is, I, gadgets, right? And, and but, but think about it, whatever your love is, okay, uh, let's just take the NFL. If you love the NFL, your time and your resources will be invested into the National Football League. If gadgets are your thing, you will spend a lot of time on gadgets and invest heavily 
in those things. If you love fishing, you're going to invest time and resources. Likewise, positively, if you love your spouse, you're going to spend time with her. You're going to be committed to her. You want to spend time. And love is more than an emotional feeling. Love requires a commitment of time and resources. And so if you love the world system that John is talking about, that's where your time and your resources will go. Well, John uses cosmos 23 times in this letter, six in these verses uh, that we're looking at, viewed as an evil system, organized under the dominion of Satan and anything that is opposed to God. John Calvin gave this very brief definition. It is at variance with God and his holy will. So anything that is opposed to God, opposed to his evil will, is worldly. Cosmos can mean chaos. And just think for a moment with me, just in the, I mean, really, we could probably just look at this day alone. Since I awoke about four hours, five, six, however long I've been awake, uh, there's been bombings in churches in Egypt, okay, persecution. ISIS has taken responsibility, 120 injured, 40 people killed. That's chaos. <laughs> it's persecution against Christians. A friend of mine, um, I mentioned this morning that he lost a good friend last night. A young man that was in college was found dead in his apartment. There's chaos. There's uh, the Syrian gas attacks. There's our response as a country, I should say, the United States response with the 59 uh, missiles. There's tragic car accidents. There's violent weather. There's chaos all around this world. And, And it's happening all the time around us. If we are consumed with the outlook and the pursuits of this world which reject Christ, it is evident that we have no love for the Father. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone does love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus said it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. C.J. Mahaney used to be the director of Sovereign Grace Music, um, has written some little helpful books, but one of them was on worldliness um, that I read some time ago, about 10 years ago. But here's the definition he gives. A love for this fallen world, it's it's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. It is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and it replaces it with its own. I think that's a good definition. John uses the world, the, the word world, as I said, uh, 23 times in this letter. And I want to look at a few of those uh, with us. First of all, consider that the world is under the dominion of Satan. He is the prince of this world. John 12 and verse 31 Christ says, now judgment has come upon this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. Look back at 1 John chapter 4. Just turn the page. By the way, my Bible software shows the density of when the word's used. In chapters 3 and 4, it's much higher, and so there's a concentration. We're going to look at several of these. Look at the first four verses with me. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they be from God, because false prophets have gone out into the world. 
By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard that he is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Chapter 5, verse 19. And we know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the world and the church are portrayed in sharp contrast together. The world and God. Though the world is influenced by the devil, it is the object of God's love. Look in chapter 4 and verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So despite the world being in this world system and, 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 and Satan having some rule and all of that, God set his love upon the world. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, the good news of the gospel. We learned back in chapter 2 and verse 2, for he himself is a propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And the world and the Christian, we have been those, Christ says, who have been, what, chosen out of the world. Oh yeah, we still live on planet Earth, okay? And we're not shocking anybody by saying that. But we've been chosen out of that world system. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, he says this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Verse 5. Who is the one who has overcome the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see how important that is for the Christian in his faith and believing orthodox or believing in an orthodox fashion of who Christ is is altogether vital. Well, the second part of verse 15, you can't love God and the world at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. And what does God mean by this in this text? What does John mean? What is the Lord trying to tell us through here? That you can't ever go to the mall. You can't ever listen to secular music or turn on a TV or whatever the situation. We, we talked, we had a good conversation at this at Men's Theology Group studying uh, Christian liberty and how that's defined and the guidelines in the Word of God. But he's going to get to it in, in verse 16. He's going to talk about these lusts that come from within. The, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and, and all of that. The chaos, as it were, that, it's, that are in our hearts that manifest themselves in attitudes and eventually actions of sin. And again, John is the, the, the grammar is such to where He's telling them to stop an action that is already in progress. Stop 
loving the world. And the same could be said of us. Notice John assumes his readers were already guilty of this. When a person is in love with the world, the love of the Father is not in him, he's saying. Authentic love to the Father means that you understand what I just read earlier, the true work of Christ. Those of us who have been born again, we understand that Christ came into the world by the perfect plan of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the covenant of redemption before history began, before time began, when there was a plan of salvation. The Father elects a people and the Son is is called to come forth and to incarnate himself and be born of a virgin and to die a horrible death on a cross in our place. In this is love, he says in chapter 4, not that we loved God, not that you were so smart and that you decided, I'm going to wake up and love God. Therefore, he's obligated to love me. No, not that you loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. God is a jealous God. Right at the beginning of the law of God, the moral law in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods besides me. It's exclusive. It's all in or nothing. James says it well in chapter 4. It's even stronger. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself a what? Enemy with God. You see, you, you can't claim espousal to Christ and have a mistress on the side. Oh yeah, I love Christ. We're all, we're all good, but I have a little mistress over here on the side. No. And when I asked my wife to uh, marry me 21 and a half years ago, um, it was a beautiful time and all that. I'm happy to talk about that later. But she, it, it, she didn't answer, yes, I will marry you. I will live with you. I'll be committed to you. I'll go through thick and thin with you. But I need to tell you something, that I'm also in love with somebody else. But thankfully, for the record, she did not say that. <laughs> but can you imagine how dumbfounded I would be? I thought I had your exclusive affection, and now you're telling me that you actually love somebody else? I can't be committed to this. And yet, that's exactly the folly that it is for born-again Christians who claim allegiance to Jesus Christ, the God-man who died in our place, the, the bridegroom, and we are the bride. When we say, no, I have, I am in love with somebody else, Jesus What folly! Augustine said to love the world and not God would be like a maiden who loved the ring of her lover, had given her and cared nothing for the man who gave it. (laughs) Think how crazy that would be, loving the ring more than the person. So do not love the world. Loving the world and loving God are opposed. Secondly, verse 16, Do you love this unholy trinity more than the one true God? John now gives his reasons for not loving the world, found in verse 16, under those three phrases, which we'll look at, and then verse 17. All that is in the world violates his holy and perfect law. And the first thing he says is, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, it could be the desires of the flesh, your translation, um, 
the word that is used can mean actually a strong desire for something good. That's the exception, but more the rule, it's the idea of a sinful desire and lust for something. Uh, it's, it's, it's a desire for something that is forbidden, something that is inordinate, something that's unnatural. That's the idea that this word is used. And it can include sexual lust or desire, but it's not limited to that. One commentator said it's a life dominated by the senses, gluttony, luxury, slaves of pleasure and selfishness. And that's probably a good summary. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. Again, not just primarily sexual, but including that. That's why Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's the same word, the the lust, the desires of your former arrogance. We're familiar with the parable of the soils, right? Sower goes forth to sow, some falls on the hard ground. The, uh, The hard ground there, the birds come and take it. Some fall on the shallow soil, springs up with joy for a short season, but withers away. But there's the third seed that's not converted, by the way, and that's the one that fell among thorny grounds. And it grew up with the good plants, and it appeared that it would someday produce fruit. But Mark tells us, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and catch this, the desire for other things, choke the word so that it becomes unfruitful. Mark is the only one out of the accounts of the parable of the soil that adds that phrase, and it's the lust for other things, being entangled in the world, that the roots are growing, that the stems are growing, the thorns are growing until you're completely entangled and you can't even breathe or break free. The desires of the flesh are desires that are centered in your nature without regard to the will of God, constantly fights against God, The lust of the flesh is contrary to the desire to do the will of God. You think of the Lord's prayer, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That disciple's prayer, that model prayer is so important. And it's it's interesting to just do a study on the will of God. And the will of God for the believer is laid out very clearly and praying for God's will to be done. And even in verse 17, the one who does the will of God abides forever. Galatians chapter 5, where most of us are familiar, we don't have time to turn, but the uh, fruits of this, the deeds of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. They're, they're, they're laid out side by side, and, and the deeds of the flesh are set side by side with the fruits of the Spirit, and they are opposed to each other. Paul writes to the church in Rome, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of putting on, it's, it's, it's the imagery of a jacket. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for what? The flesh in regard to its lust. You see how this is a theme that crosses over the various gospel writers and biblical writers. And so the first thing he says, for all that is in the world, and he lists these three phrases and says, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The second thing he says is the lust of the eyes. 
the lust of the eyes. This one seems to indicate the temptations that can come through the eye gate, the images that we see, the, the things that we choose to set our eyes upon. In the Gospels, the eyes can mislead those who are claiming to follow God. In the Gospels, the eyes are what cause blindness and is a picture of spiritual blindness. But also, receiving sight indicates spiritual life so many times in various Gospels. Proverbs 17, verse 24, The eyes of the fool are to the ends of the earth. You remember in Psalm 73, the... um, the man who just is, is looking at the wicked prospering and why are the godly suffering so much? And, and one of the things he says is their eyes bulge with fatness because they have so much. Brothers and sisters, just think with me as we just survey the Old Testament and just bring out a couple of examples. Think in the garden, the very first sin, Eve, Right? There's the, the tree of, of good and knowledge. Of the, the, do not touch that whatsoever, right? And it says in Genesis 3, 6, And when the, women, or when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she's looking at it. All the trees of the garden you may eat except for this one. And she begins to allow her eyes to lust that that fruit somehow is going to be more luxurious and tasteful than all the other trees of the garden. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes, maybe the contour, the color, the shape, the way it reflected, who knows, but it was a delight for the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate it and she gave it to her husband also. Joshua, we just read that startling account, which is right after the victory at Jericho, right? When they marched around the walls and they, and, and they were told specifically not to take the spoil or if the, whatever spoil was given was to be given to the treasury, but not to personally fill your pockets. And what happens? Achan says, man, look at all this. This is wonderful. Begins packing his pockets or whatever. I don't know how he got it under his tent, but he took it from Jericho. And then they go out to battle, right, with I, and they're defeated. And, and Joshua is throwing sackcloth and, and ashes on his head. And Lord, this is a conquest. You've promised success. What's going on? And what does he say? There's sin in the camp. You've got to remove that. And of course, if you kept reading, you can read it later. They go back up against I, and of course, um, win after they've stoned Achan to death. But even Achan, just, I mean, verse 21 is, is just terrifying. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold worth 50, or, or weighing 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them. I desired them. I saw them first, but then there was this inward turmoil deep down within where I began to covet. And then what does it say? And then I took them. (laughs) And see that progression of seeing and then allowing the heart to go through that process of being covetous and discontent with your, your portion and saying, I've got to have that. And then you take it. And of course, Achan regretted this. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, 622, the eye is the lamp of the body. So 
So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? King David, supposed to be out in battle, things are going good, decides to stay home, pacing around um, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And it says, when evening had come, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. David, King David, the man after God's own heart, the one that was used so mightily to slay Goliath and and a myriad of other things and, and would continue to be used even after this sin. He rises from his bed. He's walking around. And from the roof, he saw a woman. It's the same kind of thing. He saw a bathing beauty, and he began to covet her. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. I, I think we know the rest of the story. Why do you think Jesus says such strong words when talking about sexual immorality and adultery? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, and on and on. And then he says, if your right eye offends you, what? Tear it out. Throw it from you. It's better to go into life maimed than to have both your eyes and to be cast into hell. You see how important this is? Guarding our eyes, guarding our hearts, the lust of the flesh. But he goes on, and the third thing he says is the boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life. This is the rarest word that's here, the the idea of being boastful. It only occurs twice. It, it, It means a pretentious braggart, one that's just boasting and bragging about themselves, their possessions, and everything else. Similar words occur in these lists of negative attributes. For example, at the end of Romans 1, you know, the Gentiles, uh, the wrath of God is already revealed at the end. It talks about slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, eventers of evil. 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about the last days will be characterized by this. And he says, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money and boastful and arrogant, revilers, disobedient. Barclay describes these um, boasts of the pride of life as wandering quacks who could be found shouting their wares in every marketplace and every fairground, offering to sell men their patent cure-alls. Now, the word he uses here, it's interesting, this boastful pride of life, it can just mean physical life. Um, It's used that way oftentimes, but more often than not, and especially in the Gospels, the word speaks of one's livelihood or material possessions. So let's put that into context here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of one's possessions and the things that they have. A boasting of, for example, uh, when it talks about the, the widow's might, and the poor widow gave Here's the word, all of her livelihood into the offering box. Luke 12, we must not be like the rich man in Luke 12 who tears down his barns and he has to build bigger barns, maybe with lights you know, going around or whatever, so that everybody knows he has so many possessions. We must reject all this type of boasting. 
One translation translates this, um, the pride in our possessions. It's an arrogance produced by material possessions. And wow, well, we live in a materialistic society. Most of us struggle with materialism on one level or another. I think this applies to us. The person who thinks he has enough wealth and prosperity and numbers in the bank account to where, you know, even if God lets me down, I'm going to be okay because I've got this cushion. What folly! What ignorance! Another thing to take note of, and <clears throat> this could have been our New Testament reading, was uh, the temptation of Christ, remember? The devil takes him and tempts him in these ways. Well, read that this afternoon, Matthew 4, 1 to 10. And Satan uses the first temptation to appeal to the lust of the flesh, the second one to the lust of the eyes, and the third to appeal to the pride of life. When he takes him up, I'll give you all of these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. There's nothing new under the sun. Well, moving on, the last reason John gives is found in verse 17. Are you passing away with this world or will you abide forever? Let's read it again. And the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The carnal desires of this world along with the world itself is in a state of passing away. It's in the passive voice. It's something that's going on whether you want it to or not. It's something that God is doing that God is in control of. And so, brothers and sisters, another reason set forth for us here to not love the world, that that a new age has come in Christ, that this world is not our home. We are but pilgrims. We're here but a short time. Eternity, the new heavens, the new earth is our home, not the twinkling tinsel and fading, rusting shininess of this world. A new age has come in Christ. And it's the same word that's used here that we saw in verse 8, where it says, the darkness is passing away. It's the same word here. The idea the world is passing away, along with all of its carnal lust and cravings. But the one who keeps doing, present tense, the will of God abides forever. Furthermore, investing in the world is is a bad investment, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, you buy a new car, you drive it off the lot, it's already lost, you know, value. You, you buy something shiny, maybe it's a, something to put in your garden, and before long it's rusted, and, and you know, it ends up in the rubbish, it ends up at the dump. Investing in the world is a poor investment. All the lust of the eyes, the things that, that catch us, the twinkle, will fade away. Your own body, your own health, your own muscles, you're going to get old, you're going to get more wrinkled, and eventually you're going to die and pass from this earth. You can paste it, you can do this, you can do that, and all of that, it's going to hold together maybe a little bit longer, but not long in the whole course of eternity. And some, dreadfully, will face the Lord, and they will come with empty hands. But I went to church a few times, Lord. Lord, I, I read the Bible a little bit here and there. I had some Christian friends. But they come with nothing. They, they come with bankrupts. They have no righteousness of their own. 
The born-again believer comes and we say, my hope is in Christ, and it has been because he's transformed me and given me new desires and a new heart, and I rest in his finished work. But why do you think the health and wealth gospel is, is just so deplorable? It claims that if you ask for the big houses and you ask for the new cars, God's just obligated to give it to you. Buy my little special spring water that I import from some secret place and sprinkle it around and just watch the money fall out of the sky. Don't think that you can have your best worldly life today, now, and then have your best heavenly father in kingdom, in the the heavenly kingdom. No, it doesn't work like that. Lloyd-Jones says riches, learning, knowledge, social status, all of these things, they are vanishing. They already have the seeds of death within them. So instead, live for God's glory, brethren. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. There's only one type of person that will escape the destruction that awaits those who will not turn to Christ. And this, it's phrased very beautifully, the one who does the will of God, who continues to do the will of God. And we already know, right? Not perfectly, but that's the overall tenor and direction of our life. And when we fail, we go to 1 John 1, 9, among other texts. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us, to remit it yet again, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. History is marching on. The grand goal of redemption and glory. Christ will come back again to this earth and will judge the wicked and the dead. The new heavens and the new earth will come where we will dwell forever. And there's a sense in which this eschatological tension, the already and the not yet. Is Christ reigning today? Yes and amen. Has the devil been conquered? Yes and amen. Well, is the kingdom here yet? Well, not quite yet, but it is soon. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Children, this is the last hour. And just as you heard, Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have appeared from this. We know this, or that it is the last hour. One of the Puritans said this, to forsake Christ for the world is to leave a treasure for a trifle. Eternity for a moment of time. Reality for a shadow. It's foolishness. Paul ends that section in 2 Corinthians 4, body wasting away, inward man being renewed, and he says this, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So having eyes of eternity. Well, let's draw a couple of concluding applications, brethren. Are you flirting with the world? Do you have a mistress on the side? Do you, do you claim allegiance to Christ and I'm okay and you know I'm just going along fine, but I have this cherished lust or mistress on the side? Look, Jesus alone perfectly loved God and not this world. You're not going to be able to do it perfectly. Jesus loved God when was not entangled in this world. He, he was the one that fully came to do the will of God. It says it several times, even in John 6 alone. John 6, verse 38, But I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
If you love God, you can't be loving this world. He is a jealous God. The bridegroom does not want to see his bride flirting with another. Christ, the bridegroom who reigns in heaven as our great high priest who reigns there, who intercedes for us, does not want to see us running around with mistresses. How can you overcome the world? Well, this isn't a whole sermon in and of itself, but just a few points of application. Make it your goal to dwell on the goodness of God. Make it your goal to fall in love more with Christ. That's, that's where our affection needs to be. To be satisfied with God alone. Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. The lusts of the flesh keep a loose grip on this world. Jim Elliott, who gave his life as a missionary in the 50s, said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he would never lose. Keep a loose grip on the things of this world. It's passing away. And then realize that there is a battle. Realize that the flesh is opposed to the spirit. Realize that we do, in a sense, uh, we're shackled to the old man. Where It's like our arms and our legs are shackled to a corpse. Everywhere we go, the old man is there until we are glorified and delivered from this body. Galatians 5.17, the flesh sets, it sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The lust of the eyes. Job made a covenant with his eyes. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then shall I gaze upon a virgin? And this sex-drenched culture We need to, as fathers, to be training our daughters how to conduct themselves in this culture. We need, as men, to be guarding our own eyes and to know how to bounce the eyes and to not look at things. Some of you are struggling with looking at pornography. You've got to throw away the device, throw away the computer, do whatever is needed, get accountability. Don't fall with the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Set your affections on Christ. We read it in Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you're a born-again Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. All too often, we need to lift up our eyes. Rather than going through this world like this or looking, lift them up. Not necessarily that you're going to see him, but lift them up. And begin to think heavenly thoughts, eternal realities of a triune God who's gone to such lengths to save you. Do you not owe him a debt of gratitude with your life? May God make us love Christ all the more. That as we love him more, our affection for this world weakens. Psalm 73 at the end, whom am I of, who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And today, if you're outside of Christ, you need to be unshackled and set free. If you love this world, you cannot love God. Some some of you claim to, to have allegiance with Christ, but it's only a claim. 
It's a claim that will not hold up in the very court of heaven. John is very clear. Love not the world, nor the things in the world. He who does the will of God abides forever. You say, well, what's the will of God? Give me the list of do's and don'ts. Give me the legalistic list so I can check those off and then feel good about myself later. No, (laughs) that's not how we're saved. It's looking to Christ, the only perfect one. And for you, my unconverted friend, if you're outside of Christ, what you need is radical medical treatment. And what I mean by that is a complete heart transplant. Your heart is bad. It is stone. It will not pump life-giving, eternal life, blood. You need new life. You need a new creation. You need new desires. And so look to Jesus who came to die for unworthy sinners. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. We thank you for the strong warnings that are here, Lord. May we have dealings with you. Lord, may we keep a looser grip on this present evil world and a tighter grip on the world to come. And Lord, magnify Jesus in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.